This morning we're going to set our study of Ephesians aside for just this morning. So if you've already turned there, join me in the book of 1 John, chapter 5. It'll become apparent as we read these verses that this is nothing more than a summary and further application of the truths we've encountered thus far in Ephesians chapters 1 and 2. John writes to us, and I want to speak to you this morning, concerning truths that we know, things that we know and are to be employed in our lives for good and applied in various ways. I want you to look at the end of the fifth chapter. This is really the summary of the entire epistle, and begin reading with me at verse 18, where John says, We know... That whoever is born of God does not sin. But he who has been born of God keeps himself, and the wicked one does not touch him. We know that we are of God, and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. And we know that the Son of God has come, and has given us an understanding that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true. In His Son, Jesus Christ, this is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. Father, we ask You humbly to take this Word and open it to us for Christ's sake, for His glory. And we ask it in His name. Amen. Before we get involved in these verses, I want to ask you a few questions and talk about the book of 1 John in general. The questions that I want to ask you are these. Is your devotional life faltering? Is your commitment and obedience to Christ waning? I guess we could ask the same questions in a different way. Are you struggling in your Christian walk? Are you the same place you were a year ago this time? We should be further along, but sometimes we go backwards. More pointedly, I could ask the question, are you where Christ would have you to be? Not in location, but in relation to Him. Are you walking in love for God and your neighbor? Are you loving Christ and His Word and His Bride, His Church? Depending on how you answer those questions, really, if you answer that question of are you where you should be with Christ, are you struggling? Are you in the valley rather than on the mountaintop? I want to encourage you to do something. Read this book of 1 John. It is life-giving. It is essential for us as Christians. Use it in your life for good. Beg the Spirit of God to teach and instruct you from it. You may know, generally speaking, that the book of 1 John presents a series of tests to those who profess to know Christ. Let's just get an example or a sampling of that before we settle down in the fifth chapter. If you look at the very first chapter in verse 6, If we say that we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. 
It's one of the things we have to love about John's writing. He doesn't mince words. He gets right to the point. He cuts straight to the heart. And this is the first of a series in these opening verses, verse 8, verse 10, and the third of the second chapter, where John says, if you say but don't do this, you're deceiving yourself and you're lying to yourself. You are not of God. That comes out in the eighth verse when he says, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If you look at the 10th verse, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. And then the third verse of the second chapter, now by this we know that we know him. If we keep his commandments, he who says I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. Notice how little stock the apostle John places upon what comes out of your and my mouth. Say it all day long if you will. And yet live a life that doesn't match what you say. John says it means nothing. You're under deception. You are deceiving yourself. You are lying to yourself and to God. You're under strong delusion. I think we would all agree that it is very easy in our culture to name the name of Christ. Very little pushback is given our direction when we come and say that we are believers in Christ and that we are professing faith in His name. Costs us very little. Not so in many other parts of the world. What John is concerned with here is that we, our Christianity is more than words. Our Christianity is more than just what we say and what actually comes out of our mouths, but that our lifestyle matches. What we believe about Christ and the Word of God and and God Himself, what we believe doctrinally has great impact upon how we live practically. What we say we believe really comes to the light as if to whether or not we believe it by the way it impacts the life that we live. I've said before, and probably will say it again in the future depending on the context of the sermon, that I would not want to cause those of you who profess Christ to doubt your salvation. That I wouldn't want you to leave here wondering whether or not you are Christ's. But I'm going to be really honest with you this morning. That's exactly what I intend to do. I want you to question. I want you to examine yourself. Time is too short to be wrong on this position where you are with Christ or not. Some of you saw as you made your way in the wreck, the accident that happened right here on the loop. Do this. Go out there and trace the tire marks or tracks that that vehicle left. You'll see that they ran off of the loop, jumped the curb, came through the church yard, grazed off the brick church sign, and took a large chunk out of one of our pine trees. But yet, as we made our way out there, this young man, he's fine. Now think about just a foot further to the left, two feet further to the left, how very different that outcome could have been. You you can notice by the amount of distance he traveled from the loop to this 
driveway, how fast he was going. If you could have seen the vehicle, the entire front end was taken off or out from underneath, both wheels, both tires. He had no idea that was going to happen. And I told him, I don't remember his name, I said, I don't know where you are with the Lord, but I need to tell you the Lord was watching over you. Time is too short to be wrong about where you are. Or let me rephrase that. Time is too short to be deceiving yourself and lying to yourself and to buy the lie of the devil that to name the name of Christ and to say that you are Christ's is enough. I would rather you leave here this morning with a smitten conscience. Leave here to do some serious examination, just you and the Lord, than for you to sit here this morning under the deception that you were Christ when in reality He does not know you. What a fearful place to be. And that is the basic premise of 1 John. That being those who were Christ's live for Christ. They give good evidence of having been converted and saved by Christ. And even while we have those verses in Ephesians in our minds, let's just bring them together and balance. Are we saved by works? Some push back against this evidence in your life of being Christ, saying, well, you're looking to works for your assurance. Primarily, we look to Christ. And I'm going to say more about this later. Primarily, we look to Christ. But if you deal honestly with the book of 1 John, what John tells you to do is look inside you as well. What's there? Is there anything that matches what you say? Is there anything that that gives evidence? Is the tree of your life known by its fruit? What's actually growing on it? Evidence is in yourself and then secondly also by those around you. But we're not going to leave Christ out of the equation You'll have to listen to the whole sermon to put all of this together. And this is one of those, by the way, if you just get snippets and pieces of this, you might pronounce me a heretic or something as we go along. So please, either tune completely out now or stay with me. One of the two. The summary statement of 1 John is found in the 14th verse of chapter 5. He says that he has written what he has written so that we may know that we are in Christ. You see that in verse 13. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. Notice the wording. Notice what John says. I have written to you who believe that you may continue to believe. I have written to you who have profession now so that you will have profession later. Part of the reasoning of those who think that salvation can be lost is not a real understanding of how salvation comes. Salvation is first foremost and entirely bound up in the work of Jesus Christ for you. And as we've said from Ephesians, if you introduce any measure of works into that first part of the equation, if your salvation is dependent upon you, then certainly you can lose it. 
because you never had it in the first place. You have believed a lie. You're basing your eternity upon a lie. Christ plus any measure of my works is not grace. Christ plus anything is not grace. And so John says here in this summary statement of his in verse 13, he's writing to believers. He wants them to have real assurance that they do indeed possess eternal life. But he also wants them to continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. He does not want them to fall away. And so we reach this last part of this epistle. And I want you to notice three times over to begin verse 18, to begin verse 19, and to begin verse 20, John says, we know. So thus, the title of this sermon, three things we know. Three things that are vital. The first, and we're going to come back and work our way through one of these, is that those born of God fight hard against sin. Secondly, we know that the world is held captive by the devil. And then thirdly, we know Christ. So let's see if we can unpack these things in that order. It's interesting, as John uses this word, no, I think there is at least three things that he brings to the table with this knowledge. And by the way, this is the same way that all of us acquire this knowledge. First of all, John can say we know, and we can say we know, by our knowledge of the truth. What the Scripture has said about the Gospel and about Jesus Christ, about our sin, about salvation, how we come to know these things is by the knowledge of the truth. We must have the Word of God reveal these things to us. We cannot know these things by creation. We cannot know these things by nature. We cannot know these things by any sense of internal witness. We have to know these things as the Word of God reveals them. So we know them by our knowledge of the truth. But secondly, he can say he knows and we can know by the testimony of the Spirit. And then lastly, he knows this by his own experience. And if we were to put all of those three things together and make one sentence out of them, we could say that John knows because the Holy Spirit has taken the truth of God concerning Christ and made application of it to his heart. It's the same way that we know these things. The Spirit of God takes the written word, the truth. He makes application of it to our heart, and then we are forever changed because of it. We're not the same people that we once were. We don't have the same appetite for sin that we once had. We now grieve over it. We're now chastised of God. And so let's look at the first of these in verse 18. We know that whoever is born of God does not sin. And if you have been a student of the Bible long, then what you'll realize is that there is much confusion and much writing and many books that have been written over this first part of verse 18. Some teach from this verse a sinless perfectionism. 
And they would say things like this. A real Christian, a true Christian, ceases to sin. If you press them for chapter and verse in the Bible, verse 18 of chapter 5 is going to be the first or second verse that they run to. We know that whoever is born of God does not sin. How are we to understand this verse? Well, to understand it, we have to go back and see the initial part of it before we get to this issue of not sinning. We look at the first part of it, and John is referring specifically to one who has been born of God. This is the one that he says does not sin. And we're going to talk about the tense of this verb and all of that as we move on. But let's get first things first. John is referring to those who have been born from above. John, by the way, is the one who recorded for us the conversation of Jesus with Nicodemus. And a part of that conversation is, Jesus says, the wind blows where it wills. You hear the sound of it, but you cannot tell where it comes from nor where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. If we remember Ephesians chapter 2, those first four verses, we realize that this work of grace that is performed in us is done in spite of our sin, done in spite of our being dead in sin and trespasses, and that God has come in grace and He has awakened us. He has made us aware of the predicament that we are in, the dangerous place that we are in, and He has given us new life. That's the basic premise of John here in this 18th verse, that there has been life given by God. God has born someone again. That language carries over into our own vernacular these days. We still speak about being born again. And sometimes we will double up and we'll say born again Christians. When really the first would suffice, right? We have been born of God. So then what does he mean? One who is born of God does not sin. Well, if you read the English Standard Version, the translators of the ESV have gone a long way of, to getting this right, in my estimation. And the ESV says those who are born of God do not keep on sinning. But even that raises the question, doesn't it? Even that is not too far different than the way I read it to you in the New King James. Whoever is born of God does not sin. Whoever is born of God does not keep on sinning. The question that raises, is there a point in time in my life when I will stop sinning? Perhaps we need to reacquaint ourselves with Romans chapter 7, where even Paul the Apostle himself deals with that very thing. So what we have to do with this statement of John is we have to take this statement of John and we have to bring it to the rest of the Bible. This is the best and safest way to interpret what either may be a difficult and obscure or a text that is controversial in some way. How do you deal with it? Well, you take it and you set it down in the totality of the Bible and you make sense of it based upon what the Scriptures say in other places regarding the same subject. So when we do that, we realize that when we employ this biblical type of theology, 
we understand that John is not referring to a sinless perfection. He's not saying that super-Christians will get to the point to where they do not struggle with sin, nor even to the point where they do not sin at all. He's not saying that the struggle ceases. He is saying that those who have been truly born of God and saved of God do not sin or continue in sin without a smitten conscience. Without experiencing the discipline and correction of a loving Heavenly Father. Remaining sin, we have to, as best we can, get a real handle on this doctrine of remaining sin. How we confront it, how we deal with it, how we go about employing the mortification of sin. And it leads us to saying things like this. If you name the name of Christ and profess Him as your Savior, and yet at the same time, in the very next event of life, there is no conviction of the Spirit of God bearing down on your heart as you live willfully in sin. Beware. That idea, that concept is absolutely foreign to the Scripture. Nowhere will you find a solace for your soul to go and say it's okay if I keep on sinning and do not have a smitten conscience. If I keep on sinning and do not have a conscience that is burdened before the Lord, we can say that because when we are born of God, the Spirit of God comes and resides in our heart, in our life. He leads and He guides us. And I'll remind you that the Spirit of God always honors and glorifies Christ and takes the things of Christ and makes them known. You cannot continually, habitually sweep sin under the rug and have it not affect you if you belong to Christ. It is a cancer that will eat at your soul. And you will eventually get to a point and a place and a time where you have to have some realization that Christ has freed you from the tyranny and power of sin. So young person, middle-aged person, old person, please hear. If you say you're Christ's and you joyfully, willfully partake in sin and it has no effect on you, your conscience is not smitten, there is no guilt to be dealt with, beware. The struggle for a Christian is real. The flesh lusts against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh. But aren't we thankful that we have real help in this fight? While we feel and sense and we know the battle is real, we can take heart. The very existence of that battle in your heart is good evidence that you belong to Christ. Or at least good evidence that that work of grace has been begun in your heart and life. Sometimes people will come to me and they'll say things like, I think I'm a Christian. 
but I can't break free from this one particular sin. I fight against it. I struggle against it. There are seasons in life where it seems like I make progress and then I fall back. It's an ongoing struggle. Usually, I don't want to throw a blanket over any certain person's experience, but usually, that's encouraging. And you might ask, well, how in the world can you say that's encouraging? Someone coming and saying they are struggling over sin. Unbelievers don't care. Those in whom the Spirit of God does not dwell are not smitten over things like that. They continue to sin, and they continue to sin with a clear conscience. There might be a ping of conscience every once in a while, but go on long enough in that life, and what does the Scripture say? In a certain point in time, your conscience is going, is going to become seared over as with a hot iron, and you will completely lose that sense whatsoever. So parents, your child comes to you and they say, Mom, Dad, I'm struggling with this sin. Parents, take heart. That's good evidence that the Lord is doing a work of grace in their heart. Counsel them with the Scriptures. Point them to Christ. Show them how they are to be obedient to Him and the great help that they have. Don't beat them up over sin. Or else you'll have to beat yourself up too. Show them in the Scriptures, yes, son, daughter, this is a real struggle for the child of God. We should make progress. We have great help. We have the Word of God. We have the Spirit of God. We have a hope that is set before us. But this struggle is going to be one that is yours from now on. A certain brother comes to mind. None of you know him. But for years, he would call me on the phone and he'd say, Brother, I've done it again. I've fallen into this sin again. He lived on such an emotional roller coaster of I'm saved, I'm not. I'm saved, I'm not. I'm saved, I'm not. It tormented him. Finally, I think, prayerfully, the Lord gave him a real understanding. Primarily, look to Christ. Put your eyes there on Him. Know that He has overcome sin for you. Know that all of the penalty of your sin has been paid. All of the guilt of your sin has been removed. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Now put your mind at ease and set yourself to the work, the real work of mortifying sin. Remove yourself from the place. Remove yourself as best you can from the influence, whatever it may be. And go to work along with the Spirit's help of putting this sin to death. Realize that yes, I am a child of God. I have not fallen out of grace and come back into favor. That's one of the most crippling things for a young, immature believer is to think you fall in and out of God's favor. God loves me today. I've done everything right. I read my Bible this morning. I prayed. I was nice to my kids. I didn't kick the dog. I did all of these things. God loves me. The next morning you oversleep. You wake up grumpy. You do kick the dog on your way out. And now all of a sudden you say, God, I've fallen out of His favor. He doesn't love me anymore. Please know the Bible does not present the love of God in that fickle of a manner. 
how miserable we would be as children of God if that were anywhere near being true. Thank God it is not true. When John says, we know that whoever is born of God does not sin, I think the best way, the most faithful way to reconcile this statement with the rest of Scripture is to say, we know that whoever is born of God does not habitually keep on sinning and have no pain of conscience about it whatsoever. Be careful how you deal with this doctrine of remaining sin. It is a reality, but it is not a license. It's something that we struggle with in this life, and I think part of the reason God has made it so is so that we will yearn for the perfection of the next life to a greater degree. We will yearn from being delivered from the very presence of sin to a greater degree. The doctrine of remaining sin in Scripture, please hear me, is not a license to go on sinning. But it's a call to arms. Fight. The good fight of faith. There's another interesting part of this verse, and I want to deal with it quickly before we move on. Depending on which translation you read, it brings in even more confusion to this whole equation. We know that whoever is born of God does not sin, but he who has been born of God keeps himself. The question being, do you mean it's up to me now to keep myself? Let's do something before we go back to this. And I want you just to flip one page. Perhaps it's on the same page in your Bible. To the short epistle of Jude. No chapter, just verse I want you to look at verse 20. Because perhaps in the Scripture, this is the place where this truth shines the brightest. The responsibility of the Christian to keep and the blessed promise of God that He will keep. The blessed promise of God that that work that He has begun in you, He will see to completion. So if you're in Jude 20, notice He says, But, but you, beloved building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. Basically what Jude is saying there by saying, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God. He's saying, use the means God has given you, prayer, study, fellowship, Use any means that you can to keep yourself under the waterfall of grace. Use everything available to you to keep yourself in contact with this life-giving grace of God. To our own detriment, do we stop praying, stop reading, stop studying, stop fellowshipping with the saints, and go it alone? That's doing the very opposite of what Jude says, of keeping yourself in the love of God. But then if you keep reading, you get down into verse 24, this doxology, Jude says, now to him who is able to keep you. Keep me from what? From stumbling. And to present you faultless before the presence of His glory with exceeding joy to God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. Jude is not speaking double. 
He's not contradicting himself. He's saying you, Christian believer, have the responsibility before God to employ the means of grace and keep yourself in the love of God while knowing that there is one greater who will keep you from stumbling and who is able to present you faultless. Another way to balance this is you can't present you faultless. I present myself, you present yourself before, before God faulted, guilty. There is only one who can present us to God and keep us from stumbling in that way. So go back to this 18th verse with me. When John says, but he who has been born of God keeps himself The greatest help that I've found in understanding this verse comes from John Gill. John Gill was Spurgeon's predecessor in the Metropolitan Tabernacle, or what would in time become the Metropolitan Tabernacle. And John Gill here says that the one formed, or the one born, John is here referring to the new man. And you recognize that Paul uses this often in his writings, the old man, the new man, put off the old man, put on the new man. John Gill basically says that who has been born of God keeps himself. He's saying this is the new man who is employing the means, keeping himself until Christ is formed in him. So this is not, as it might read on the surface, a great weight placed upon the Christian to keep himself ultimately and finally, but it's really an encouragement to see that 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 has been born of God in us, the new man that resides in us, is fighting with every ounce of strength within him to keep himself in the love of God, to use Jude's language. And then the opposite truth. Here at the end of this verse, the wicked one does not touch him. I want you to think with me for a moment of this glorious truth. The wicked one does not touch you because he has touched Christ. And I don't mean there to give Satan more than he's due. I don't remember the exact words that we sang this morning. My mind just can't grab them right now, but something about the power of darkness overcoming, and we read that in Matthew 27. Let me remind you, God our Father was pleased to crush Him. Our Father was pleased to bruise Him. I remember years ago we went to this thing. It's not the Passion Play in Eureka Springs. It's the one in Glen Rose. It's lower scale. Some of you will know the name of it. And I remember this was probably 25 years ago, 20 years ago. There in that whole scenery of the cross, there was Satan moving all about, right? He was 
he was standing beside the cross for a while. Then he would climb up on the wall and he would look down and he was doing this with his hands. And when Christ yielded up his spirit, he was doing the victory dance, right? I think that's a very false depiction. Satan knew he was defeated from the beginning. There was no false hope in him who knows the scriptures that this momentary death of Christ. Do you remember what Jesus said to Peter when Peter rebuked Jesus by saying, Lord, you, you'll not go to the cross. Far be it from you, Lord. What did Jesus say to Peter who had just two verses earlier said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. What did Jesus say to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. Which I suppose we could read there that Jesus is teaching that Satan himself did not want Christ making his way to the cross. Why? Because he knew that was his ultimate and final defeat. Isn't that, couldn't that also be applied to the temptations in the wilderness? Why why Satan was coming to Christ there in a greatly weakened condition, trying to get him to bypass the cross. I'll give you all of this. Go and whatever you can see, it's all yours. So we go back to this, this part of this verse. The wicked one does not touch him again. I think it's John Gill that said this. What this means is the, the sting... The powerful sting of Satan will not so affect you that you experience this, quote, sting of death that Paul writes about in 1 Corinthians 15. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, grave, where is your victory? So the first part of this that we know, we know if we're Christian, we have been born of God, And because we've been born of God, given new life, given a new heart, we are now a new man, a new creation. We have the Spirit of God in us that we will not habitually keep on sinning without conviction, without chastisement, without discipline. We know that this new man that has been created in us and that we ourselves are, have been created to walk in newness of life. And as such, we are to keep ourselves in the stream of grace by employing the means of God. And the blessed part of this is, in the end, we can go to sleep at night knowing that the wicked one does not touch us. That's just the first thing that we know. The second thing that we know in verse 19 is that we know that we are of God. Basically a summary of verse 18. But the sub-point of verse 19, not only do we know that we are of God, we know that the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. The ESV again says the world lies under the power of And isn't that what Paul has said there in those first three verses of Ephesians 2? About the individuals that make up the, quote, world. He's speaking here of the individual and then the world system as a whole. And he's saying we know that all of it 
The individual Christian in the world system itself is all under the sway of the devil. Basically, he's saying the world and its inhabitants are captive to do the will of Satan. So we have no reason to be caught off guard in fighting against sin. And doesn't this underscore John's admonition earlier in this same letter to be in the world but not of it? When you see a great display of worldliness or a great manifestation of sin in an individual or a group of people or whomever it may be, let this thought come to your mind. They are under the sway of the wicked one. And while those who are under the sway of Satan are to be objects of our compassion, objects of our pity, objects of our evangelism, at the same time, when we see those things, gratitude should well up in our hearts that we have been freed from the tyranny and the power of the adversary. He doesn't hold sway over you anymore. While it may once have been rightly and truly said of you, the devil made you do it. Christian, you can't say that. What you can say is I chose to do it. But you can't say the devil made you do it. That's a cop out. It's not biblically true. The power of sin in the life of a believer has been broken. We're no longer under the tyranny of the adversary. Even though remaining sin is a reality and it's a struggle, it is no longer the defining characteristic of our life. The whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. So it's no wonder the world has gone crazy. And it will get worse. In my estimation, it's going to get worse. That, makes, that sets the stage for the preaching of the gospel. That makes the ministry of evangelism, the preaching of the word, all the more important so that we can find in there, so that Christ can, through us, find his own who are yet still under the sway of the wicked one. Our voices may be the ones that he uses to preach the gospel, to draw them out. So engage it. With great wisdom, discernment, discretion, engage the whole world that lies under the sway of the wicked one. You're not going to find in your Bible a verse, or even half a verse, that says it's okay for a Christian to run to a cave and live out his days. To completely disengage from this corrupt world. What you will find in your Bible is that we are to shine as lights in the midst of this perverse generation. What you will find is that we are to be, because of the message of the gospel, that we proclaim the very preservative, the salt, of this earth. But then there's a third thing that we know. Perhaps this is the greatest thing that we'll consider. 
Verse 20, and we know the Son of God has come. Let's just see if we can begin to understand the verse. We know the Son of God has come. We read the Gospels and we understand how He's come. He's come in great humility. He's come setting aside for a time the glory that He had with the Father from all eternity. He has come in time. We now live after His coming and we are awaiting His second coming. But then John goes on and says, not only has He come, but He has given us an understanding that we may know Him who is true. Oh, please see it. The dying world around you lies under the sway of the wicked one, but you, believer, know Him who is true. There is not a greater contrast to be contemplated than that concerning the difference between an unbeliever and a believer. And he goes on and says, We are in Him who is true not only as He come, not only has He come and given us an understanding, but now we are in Him. We are united to Him. We are in Him. More importantly, He is in us and He is all truth. He is full of grace and truth. We are in Him who is true in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. And then he ends with an obscure, what seems to be an obscure mentioning, which seems to be a breakaway from everything that he has said thus far, concluding this epistle. He says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Anything that rivals Jesus Christ in your heart Keep yourselves from it. The word literally means to be on your guard. John, in his very pastoral sense, uses this phrase, little children. The most mature saint is a little child before Christ. Keep yourselves from idols. This is an appeal to end this letter for Christ to be all in all. For there to be no rival upon the throne of your heart. Idols come in many forms and fashions, don't they? Some idols are seen immediately for what they are. Some are far more subtle. Anything that keeps you from giving your all for the best. Jesus Christ is an idol. Anything that divides your devotion, anything that seeks to draw you away from Christ, John calls an idol and he says, keep yourself from it. So the three things that we know, if I were to summarize we know the struggle of remaining sin. 
but we know we have victory in the end. We know now more fully from reading this verse why the world is reserved for fire and damnation. Why? Because it is held under the sway of the wicked one. But lastly, we know Christ. Most importantly, Christ has come and given us an understanding of himself. And he is true. This morning as I was making my way over here, after having considered these verses for several hours, this morning I found myself thinking, the birds are singing, you can hear them. The sky is blue. All seems to be well. But there are people that I know There are people that I love who will sit under the preaching of the gospel again this morning and unless they repent of their sins and turn to Christ, they will die in their sins and be under the eternal wrath of God. You see, what's true in nature, I think is also true in the spiritual realm. Sometimes we walk out into the beauty of God's creation and we're so captivated by it that everything else just seems to go away, right? One of the greatest ploys of Satan is to display the common grace of God to such a degree that you think you're not in need of particular or special grace. What do I mean by that? Sometimes you you observe your life and life is so good. The birds are singing and the sky is blue. And you're taking in all of that common grace. Your, your lungs are filling with air. You have money in your bank account. Whatever it may be. And you bask so, so greatly in that common grace given to you by the giver of all good gifts that the ploy of Satan lulls you to sleep of your need for a particular grace. The grace that is only known in Jesus Christ. One thing that we skipped over, and I'm, I'm closing here. I mentioned the confusion or difficulty some find with verse 18, which the difficulty and confusion some find with verse 16 completely overshadows that. If anyone sees his brother sinning a sin which does not lead to death, he will ask and he will give him life for those who commit sin not leading to death. There is sin leading to death. I do not say that he should pray about that. All unrighteousness is sin and there is sin not leading to death. What in the world is John talking about? About sins that lead to death. Sins that don't lead to death. And I'm indebted here to a man named John Trapp. He answers the question, what is this sin leading to death? And he says, it's not the breaking of any one single commandment. It's not even the breaking of all the commandments simultaneously. And I think what he means by that 
is we can say, as you sit here this morning, you will not be condemned to hell because you've lied. You will not be condemned to hell because you've stolen. You will not be condemned to hell because of lust in your heart. You will not even be condemned to hell because of adultery. The sin that leads to death is the sin against the gospel of Jesus Christ. The blasphemy of the Spirit, it is called in other places. You will be condemned to hell for your sin against the gospel. John Trapp's words in quotations. It is a sin against the gospel, a willful, malicious refusing of pardon upon such terms as the gospel offers to scorn to be beholden to God for any such free favor and grace. That's the sin leading to death. Can I summarize it for you? The sin that will lead you not only to a physical death, but to a, an eternal second death of condemnation is to sin against the gospel of Jesus Christ, to blaspheme the Spirit of God. When you hear again, the message of the gospel that Christ died in your place. He absorbed the wrath of God for you. He has removed your sin as far as the east is from the west. To sin against the gospel is to say, I want none of that. I won't have it. I'll have me on my terms. And I'll go out and bask continually in the common grace of God after all. I'm a decent person. Perhaps I'm an even good person. I have nice things. I do good to people. I enjoy God's creation. I love the outdoors. He has given me ability to make money. I, I can use my hands. Let me tell you as clearly as I can. You can only bask in that type of common grace for so long. It will all come crashing down around you. And then it will be turned into the very fuel that burns for all eternity. The thinking going something like this. I'm not putting words in God's mouth, but I'm saying you can consider it this way. From God's perspective, I gave you so much. I gave you parents who loved you. I gave you grandparents who loved you. I put you in a church where there was an, at least an attempt for the gospel to be preached. I gave you good things. You had nice clothes. Your parents cared for you. I gave you the ability to work. I gave you the ability to use your hands. I gave you a great intellect. I gave you all of these things. And yet in the end, you chose you. You see how common grace becomes the very fuel for the fire that cannot be quenched where the worm never dies. And what do I know, but I think there's a real reality of that. If the rich man and Lazarus, if there's any eternal significant truth there about perception in hell, about knowing what you scorned, Knowing what you cast off. 
knowing that you could have been fed with the finest of the wheat, but you chose, you chose the scrap, the crumb under the table. My prayer for you is that the Lord would awaken you to these things and that you would run to Christ. And then so long as you have this particular grace of God in Christ, you have a real disregard for common grace. I was thinking this morning as we were watching John Snyder, obviously this man is extremely intelligent. You can't make a language where there was no language without being extremely intelligent. He has tremendous gifts. But he's forsaken all. And he goes and lives in this little village with nothing. And he's done so for years. Now I'm not saying that we all have to do that. Some of you might. Some of you young men, God willing, will do that. God only knows. But I'm not saying that to be super Christian we all have to do that. What I am saying is that we have to be willing to set aside any common grace and just have Christ. He's enough. He's enough. Don't let the gifts that God has given you be the reason why you will not come to the greatest gift. Would you do that before it's too late? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these things that your word tells us we can know. We can know that we have been born of God. We can, with some great measure of assurance, know that we are children of God. The Spirit of God indwells us. We know that this world is in such a state because it is held captive and lies under the sway of the wicked one. But in the face of all of this, what a glorious truth, we know Christ. We know that He has come. We know that He has given us and granted us an understanding. Oh God, help us to keep ourselves from idols. Even if idols in our lives are represented by good gifts that you give. Help us to set them aside and embrace by faith the greatest gift of Jesus Christ unto the saving of our soul. O God, may it be so for everyone here. I ask it in Christ's name. Amen.